Are you a victim crippled by the minotaur in the labyrinth of your mind? Or will you fight your biggest challenges like Theseus and fulfill your potential? My name is Zulfakar and welcome to the Minotaur's Maze. Welcome to the Minotaur's Maze. My guest today is Will Spencer, who is an entrepreneur, traveler, and storyteller. His path has taken him from Stanford University to the dot-com boom and through 33 countries in six continents. Along the way, his passion for personal growth led him into the manosphere and the world of men's personal development and transformation. He now spends his time helping other men become exceptional versions of themselves through discipline and self-knowledge, which is the inspiration behind his platform known as the Renaissance of Men. Will, thank you for being here and welcome. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited for this conversation. Yes. So um, just for the uh, sake of the view, like, you know, um, this is going to be the first part of possibly one uh, of possibly two or maybe three, depending on how we get on uh, part series of, of episodes where we're going to be talking about three themes. Um, and the first one is religious revival. Uh, the second theme will be ayahuasca. And the third theme will be programming and conditioning from movies and music and the impact that has on individual and societal behavior and manifestation, which is a mouthful, but we will explain that as we go through it. Uh, but just to start, before we go into that, Will, um, your story is quite fascinating because the renaissance of men is, 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 is kind of like a different way of the theme that I've got for my podcast, which is the Minotaur uh, mm-hmm. maze and, and Theseus and, and the Minotaur. Um, but just for the audience sake, can you just give us a brief history about yourself and, and how you got here today? Sure. That's a brief as a, as a bit of a challenge for my story because there's so many twists and turns through it, but I'll, I'll, I'll do my best uh, to, to, to keep it, you know, the high level. So I was born in Phoenix, Arizona, which is where I live now. Uh, I grew up there, spent the first 18 years of my life uh, in Phoenix. And then I, when I was, uh, when I was 18, I went to university at Stanford, uh, which was of course a, a huge deal. Uh, I left school at the end of my junior year. I, I did what's called stopping out, which is where you, um, take a sort of a sabbatical, I guess you might say. And I did a dot-com startup and I was 20 years old and I went from, you know, basically a college student to, you know, helping to run a company of 50 people and raising $20 million. And, you know, it was, it was an incredible experience, like having Mm -hmm. that experience of entrepreneurship that early in my life, which I never thought I would do turned out to be very formative for me. So um, that company didn't work out, which of course many startups don't. So I went back to school, finished my degree and uh, then I lived in the Bay Area for another, I guess, 14 or 15 years or so. And I got to see the, the San Francisco Bay Area change quite a bit. Um, coming out of university, when I finally graduated, um, the, you know, the whole state was wrecked by the dot-com crash. And, uh, and then as, as the new platform of, uh, of smartphones started to take off and social media started to take off in 2007, 2008, there was a bit of a, there was an economic revival that soon turned into um, a bit of a cultural collapse, and so what you see in San Francisco right now is, of course, quite economically successful, but it's culturally collapsed. Mm-hmm. In the midst of all that, um, you know, I, I wasn't particularly. I was born Jewish. I wasn't particularly religious growing up. I went to a, a, a Jesuit high school, but I was always interested in spirituality and psychology. It was just always very natural for me. 
And uh, I, I love that your theme, the theme of your podcast is the Minotaur's maze. And you, you put effort into uh, helping uh, your guests see the meaning of that myth in their own lives. Cause I'm also interested in mythology. And I first started thinking about masculinity um, when I went back to school after my, after my startup phase, when I took a class on Jungian psychology, which is, you know, basically about how to apply myths to your own life. And perhaps, you know, the book Iron John, which is very much about that as well. So that was the start of my interest in masculinity. And I fused that eventually with psychology and spirituality and started liberating myself, you know, let's say in 2013, 2014, uh, from many of the decisions that I had made. I had set myself off on this trajectory of my life. And um, I found after a while that it wasn't working out for me. And, uh, and I had to make a lot of decisions that said, um, I can't get there from here. And so I'm going to have to transform myself inwardly uh, in order to get to where I want. And what happened, um, that, that first catalyzed in 2013 with the Mankind Project New Warrior Training Adventure, which was a very powerful experience that fused spirituality, mythology, and psychology, uh, really transformative. And that was my introduction to transformation as a man. And I spent the next two years working as hard as I could to transform myself, to be better, to be better. And I found at the end of that, that the path that I was previously on no longer served me, that I had grown out of it. And I let go of it. And I made a big shift in my life. And uh, I liberated myself in 2015, 2016 to pursue my life stream, which was backpacking around the world. So I had uh, saved up for that for many years. I traveled through South America. I went through Asia. Uh, I went through China, India, Australia, New Zealand. I didn't make it all the way around the world. Um, and then in 2019, I moved to New Zealand for a little while. That didn't work out. So in, at the start of 2020, I moved back to the United States just before the COVID lockdowns hit. So I moved mm -hmm. into my apartment, the apartment I'm in right now. I moved in the day the lockdowns hit, Phoenix, oh, Arizona. Okay. Yeah, which coincidentally was... Um, the four-year anniversary of when I left the United States. Wow. Okay. Yeah. To the day, March 21st, 2020, uh, 2016 is when I left the United States. March 21st is uh, 2020 is when I moved into my apartment four years later to the day. Very, I didn't choose that either. Like that was the day the apartment became available. So fate had a hand. And then during lockdown, um, I took the opportunity of, you know, I'm in a new city. I don't know anybody. I'm going to take this opportunity to transform myself even further because I had total control over my time and my space. And uh, it was out of that, that the Renaissance of men was born in uh, July, August, September of 2020, which I've been doing for about a year or so now. Excellent. Excellent. So, um, I mean, that, that was a quick overview and I'm sure there's a lot to unpack in that. Um, yeah. But before we get into the, the, the main theme of this episode, which will be religious revival, um, yeah. obviously the, the concept behind the Minotaur now, this is, it's got a, two concepts uh, obviously there's the internal minotaur which is fears anxieties issues mm. and then the external you know problems in the world challenges obstacles mm. so in that story of yours what would you say was the biggest minotaur in other words what was the biggest challenge or fear or obstacle that you had to overcome and 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 what what you uh, what you'd say it was the biggest or maybe the biggest battle or maybe the most significant battle that caused the biggest transformation in yourself Sure. Yeah. Um, there's two, it's the same battle, but there's two faces to it, um, which is something that's only become obvious to me over time. So the, the battle that it present, the way that it presented itself to me was it was a struggle um, to, to find my way into a relationship with a woman where I wasn't a caretaker. 
it was very easy for me to find myself into romantic relationships where I was giving, 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 caring, caring for someone, caring for somebody. And in that sort of, I think the word for it is codependent, you know, where it's like, I'm with someone who needs to be cared for. Uh, I need to care for them. And it's this kind of, it's this kind of cycle, you know, mm -hmm. and the problem with that is it's fulfilling. It, it meets a pattern. It's a pattern that was ingrained in me from childhood to be a caretaker to women. That was sort of part of my upbringing, which is a whole separate discussion. And so I fulfilled that pattern, but the relationship itself wasn't fulfilling and say, nurturing to me as a man. And so I'm in this position that it's, it's comfortable, familiar, comfortable, but it's deeply uncomfortable as, as well. Like, I don't want to be here, but I don't know that I can leave. And that's codependency. So that was, um, that's, a, that's a face of codependency as experienced inside. And so my minotaur, which has shown up a couple major times in my life, was being in that position. Like, I need to be a caretaker. But what was hiding behind that, um, that caretaker, in addition, like, it's easy for me to take care of somebody else but I discovered that it was actually very difficult for me to take care of myself. Meaning like it's easy for me to take all this energy that I have to care for somebody. That's the face of it. The face of the battles. I'll give it to someone else. Like, well, no, first I have to learn to take that away from that person or, or, or reclaim it. And then how do I actually give all this care to myself? Am I worthy of being cared for? Am I worthy of my own of my own love, let's say, am I, am I worthy of my own engagement and, and, and cultivation? And so that was two halves of the same. So breaking the, the pattern of giving things away almost too freely, like caring for someone's not a bad thing, mm -hmm. but it's when the, when the relationship is based on that, that you get into dangerous patterns. So I had to pull that away and tell myself that it was okay. No, I'm going to take this away. I don't have to be a caretaker for other people. In fact, it's bad that I am. It deprives us both of what we need. So I took that care away and then had to learn the other face of it, which was giving that care to myself. And that was its own battle. Like, no, I am, I am truly worthy of my own love. And whatever I think inside myself makes me feel like I'm not worthy of my own love. I neither need to get into integrity with myself, first of all, like, because when I come into integrity with myself, I see that I'm worthy of love. Like that's the guy that I love. That's me. He's in integrity. Right. And also deal with things from my past and shame. So you talk about the Minotaur and that's first taking away the need to care for others and then giving that care to myself where the two faces of that battle. Okay. And, and how long did that transformation kind of take then? You know, obviously it can't have been an overnight kind of thing, but Ooh. was it months? Was it years? Like wow, how long did it take before you felt like, yes, I've, 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 I've successfully de defeated this challenge. Or is it still ongoing now? You know, obviously, you know, this is something that, might be ongoing oh yeah no that's that's a that's a good question um i first became aware i mean i i think in some ways i was struggling with this we'll say my whole life up until like 2013 but i just didn't know i would find myself i find find my way into relationships with women where this side of myself could come out and then you know but then why were the relationships not working i don't know it's, I'm just not good at dating. Are there something wrong with them or who knows? Right. I first became dimly aware of this pattern in 2013. It took two years of weekly work mm -hmm. for me to, to, for me to really deal with it to the point where I could make a substantial change in my life, like almost, almost two years to the day. And when I say two years of weekly work, what that means is 
I was in a men's group on Monday nights and I was seeing a therapist on Thursdays and the therapist was running the men's group. So I'd sit in the men's group on Monday, stuff would come up. I bring it to the therapist on Thursday, stuff would come up and go back into the men's group. So it was this ongoing pattern of like once, you know, one, two, one, two. And it was that for two years working as hard as I could to finally make the big change to really unearth the thing that I needed to unearth. And that was very significant. And then it showed up again um, about f- uh, four or so years later, I uh, mentioned that I was moving to New Zealand and that was to get into a relationship, um, which was far healthier for me, but still had a very strong caretaking component. And then I was forced to confront that same aspect again at like what you might say is a deeper level was less obvious that this is not good for me, where I really had to take ownership of the things that I wanted and say, no, this is who I am and this is what I want and then, and really claim it. Um, and so, um, I, and then I overcame that. That took about six months of support, less with a therapist and more with my 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 great friend Eddie. And uh, he was really there for me to help me walk through that difficult process. Is it something that I still? Yeah. So that took six months or so. It was excruciating, um, as it should be. So is it something that I'm still dealing with? I'm not in a relationship right now, but I don't think it is. And um, because I've watched myself move into dating situations over the past, let's say six months or so. And I've been far more cautious and less, you know, throw myself in and far more, I'm far better at establishing boundaries early on and saying like, okay, no, this is not okay. And looking for different, looking for different qualities in women and and the women that I've been dating and, and sort of saying some things are not okay. Um, And so it's, I'm not struggling. I can't say for sure because I'm not dating at the moment, but I don't think Mm -hmm. I'm struggling with it in the way that I used to. Brilliant. And is this something, obviously you help other men um, through their challenge. Is, is this common amongst other men? If so, like what advice do you give them then to help them through their challenge? With this particular minotaur, you mean? Yes. Yeah. It's really, it's really difficult to say where to start. I, I don't know if it's a challenge that many men face, but I wouldn't be surprised. Mm-hmm. I had a particularly bad case of it. Um, okay. because I had a very, um, let's just, I had a very unhealthy relationship with my mother. I, there were lots of things that I didn't get during my upbringing that I had to learn to cultivate in myself later. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of, uh, a lot of the need for boundary setting wasn't present in my family or in my home. And I had to teach myself and, you know, I've, I've been through a whole reconciliation process with that, but that, that was a thing. So for other men, is it a problem for them? And what do I tell them to do about it? Well, I, I can't, it's hard for me to say to what extent it is. I, I observe that there are men that are in codependent relationships. Um, and what do I tell them to do? I think the best thing for men in codependent relationships to do is you have to find brothers. You have to get around male friends. Male friendship is incredibly healing, incredibly restorative. But the thing is, is it can't just be, this is one of the problems with like a uh, nerd, like nerd culture. You know what I mean? Now I don't have a problem with nerd culture. I love science fiction. You know, I saw all, all three Lord of the Rings movies. I saw them in the theater uh, for the, um, the return of the King premiere. There was a theater in San Francisco. That was the West coast premiere of return of the King. But before that were the two directors cut versions of the previous films. So it was like 10 hours in the cinema, right? It was incredible. It was one of the best things I ever did. It was so awesome. So like, you know, talk about nerd culture. This isn't from, you know, I play video games and I read more science fiction when I was a kid than I read, you know, classic fiction. So there's no judgment in that term. You know, it's, it's, it's something that I've been a part of, but one of the challenges with nerd culture is you have a whole bunch of guys coming together in friendship, but they don't really know how to be men. There isn't a man in there that really models that for them. So they, they, they have community, they have, you know, shared interests, 
but they don't have as mutual support because they don't know how to support themselves, but they, besides being there in presence with each other, which is valuable in itself. So I don't want to dismiss that. Um, but you know, one of the things that nerd culture is lacking is a strong masculine figure, you know, masculinity that needs to be cultivated in them. So when you go looking for brothers, you need to find men who you admire, who, who embody that kind of energy that you want to bring into your life. And you have to cultivate that in your life and you have to share it with other men because men being around men is restorative. It helps bring us back to ourselves. It's curative, meaning it helps cure masculinity cures many of our ails as modern men. And so the first thing that I can recommend just broadly without, you know, knowing any single man situation is you got to find a tribe. You have to find the tribe of brothers to be with and that, and including at least one man, if not more, who really has that kind of positive, uh, strong, confident, affirmative, masculine energy. And for men who don't know where to find that, uh, just off the top of their heads, go to the gym. I know that there are a lot of there are a lot of fears that men have about going to the gym, whether they'll be judged for not being able to lift the right amount of weight or their form will be proper. That's not true at all. You know, gym bros are some of the most open, friendly guys, you know, that you'll meet and they really just want to see each other succeed. So if you show up like anything else, you show up, you keep showing up, you keep trying and just just position yourself in such a way that you let people know that you're open to conversation. Cause there's a way that you can go to the gym and you got your hoodie up and you got your headphones on and you're in the zone. And that says to people don't show up. But if you're kind of like, seem like you don't know what you're doing or something like that. And you're just kind of open to someone coming up to say, hi, they will come up and say hi. And then you'll begin finding some of that energy that you're looking for. Brilliant. And you know, this, again, it links to the, the, the theme of the thesis and the manual topic one of the aspects is Theseus needed help from Princess Ariadne, who gave him mm. the string and the, the sword. So, you know, you need other people to help you. And in this case, you need other men to help you. And, and while we're on the topic, it's from a men's group that me and you connected. So, right. you know, um, obviously I've, I've interviewed uh, Alexander Cortez um, mm-hmm. and, you know, he's obviously built a reputation for himself in, in, in this field. Um, and you need that. It's, it's just a male-only space. You know, boys will be boys, but you need men to talk about being a man you know because it's, it's men that will spur you on to be a better man obviously you know i don't want to get into the the whole man versus woman kind of thing but you need that support you need that uh that tribe that you mentioned and you mm-hmm. know if you can't find it in in real life like i didn't find it in in real life uh, to be honest but i'm now part of multiple groups on online and i know you've uh listened to some of your podcasts you went to the 21 convention i didn't follow that convention but i know elliot holse is another figure mm-hmm. um which which you guys admire and, and I'm, I'm in one of his groups as well which is called the king's transformation and you know men need other men to spur themselves on and become mm-hmm. better versions of themselves. And it's not about, you know, obviously in, in this society, I'm sure we're going to come across this in, in one of the talks that we discussed, this idea of toxic mas- masculinity, but mm-hmm. it's not toxic masculinity. You need a certain level of mas- masculinity. Otherwise you will become weak and soft and, and wither away. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I agree. I agree. Toxic masculinity is a really complicated term. There's a lot that's wrapped up in there. You know, toxic masculinity is a term and one level is meant to imply that all masculinity is toxic. That's how that word is used. There is a, there are a degree of toxic behaviors that men can exhibit. And that's a better way of thinking of it. Like, of course, you know, if a man has unprocessed, um, unprocessed, we'll say trauma or things going on in his childhood that that make him prone to outbursts of, of rage and anger. Perhaps he was abused as a child and no one has helped him process through that, that abuse, let's say physical, that physical abuse. 
he will have a lot of anger because he's now a grown man and he has unprocessed anger from having his boundaries violated as a child. That man is prone, not necessarily, but can be prone to exhibit toxic behaviors, violent outbursts, which you may have seen us talking about in, uh, in Alexander Cortez's group, you know, this, the subject of men being prone to anger. That used to be me. I suffered from nice guy syndrome, which was, I had my own thoughts and my own feelings, but I suppressed those within myself until a moment when they would come out in some sort of some sort of outburst. I had myself locked down, but you can't hold yourself locked down forever. Now I never, I never harmed anyone or yelled at anyone, but it would show up in just these like fits of rage. You know what I mean? Just privately, like what's going on. And that's, you know, that's an example of something that's unprocessed within me. Now someone would call that toxic. I don't think that's toxic at all. I don't think that's toxic masculinity. That's just, that's just a toxic behavior that I then worked out and was able to integrate my ability to feel anger into my life and now anger can be a very powerful defensive tool. It lets people know that was not okay, right? Now, someone, now the other side of toxic masculinity is that women use it, uh, I'll say society, not necessarily women, um, they use it as a shaming tool. This idea that if a man starts to, you know, starts to feel confident in himself and stand up straight, he gets hit with this term toxic masculinity saying, no, you don't get to be masculine until we tell you you can be masculine because the same qualities of toxic masculinity that someone would describe as toxic, you know, in the wrong circumstance. Well, as soon as the floodwaters come, you need that toxic man to show up and kick down doors and be aggressive mm -hmm. and assertive. So toxic masculinity sort of serves as this tool. It's like, no, you're toxic masculine, but now, now man up. So toxic masculinity and man up work the same. They're commands. You're being toxically masculine. Sit down, man up, stand up. It's like men are dogs. Men are, men are, men are, 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 are servants. You know what I mean? Masculinity has, has become this thing that gets, um, we'll say, um, we'll say chained to someone else's command versus something that, no, I actually get to command that. And you don't get to tell me what to do through shame. Brilliant, brilliant. And, you know, we could talk about this all, all, all day long, but I don't want to get into that particular topic. Sure. But, um, Let's you go. Know, obviously, one of the um, other ways, obviously, you help men find purpose now. And yeah. um, obviously, religion is one of the greatest forms to help people find purpose. So coming to the theme of this particular podcast, talk to us about your religious background. Obviously, you mentioned it before that like you were in spirituality, you were born Jewish. Like, What was your journey and and how would you identify your religious inclination right now? Sure. Yeah. My, my journey through religion and spirituality is, is one of the most, to me, interesting parts of my life. I, I've, I've only ever wanted two things. And I, and I know this about myself because the first time I ever really wanted something for myself was a, a New Year's Eve 2000. I went, to a, I went to a rave. My sister took me to a rave in Phoenix. It was a and, and uh, you know, here we are, I've never been to a rave, never done any drugs or anything like that before in my entire life. And there's this unfamiliar music playing and all these people like, what's going on here, you know? And uh, my sister gave me an ecstasy pill and I took that. And, you know, about an hour later, my brain just exploded as it was an incredible experience. I'll never forget it. And I spent the rest of the night just dancing under the stars because it was, there was an out, there was a room without a roof. And I just remember finally being confronted with a desire that I had within myself that I had never, that I couldn't place from anything in my life. I was never taught this desire. And the desire was to travel the world that my family never traveled. We never went anywhere, you know, but where did this come from? And, and that, that was a big part of me that guided the next, I guess I would say 20 years of my life. Um, but also as part of that, I was really interested to explore my inner world. 
Um, and that came out of that because in order to bring about my dreams, I knew that I had to change my mind and change my heart, right? I can't just make, I can't just make the outer world what I want. I know that I have to adapt myself. I don't know where I got that idea from, but it's true. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went exploring through religion, primarily during my quest through spirituality. So like I said, I was born, um, I was born Jewish. Sorry, I've got text messages coming on my computer at the moment. Um, I was, uh, I was born, let's see, maybe I can turn it off. No, probably not. I was born Jewish and I went to a Jesuit high school, Catholic high school. And, um, you know, that alone was an interesting contrast, you know, I mean, it's like, okay, but I mean, I, I found, I went to, I would go to Catholic retreats because there, it was a boys school. And so there would be religious retreats, which I would go to. And so we'd be talking about religious issues. And I just found those subjects really interesting. I'm like, I don't know. There's, well, there's only one God. How many more do you need? You know what I mean? So, so there was that. And then of course I went to the Bay area and in the Bay area, there's a lot of new age philosophy, which is kind of loosely based on Buddhism with some Hindu symbolism mixed in there. So I went deep into the new age world, you know, psychedelics and and stuff like that. And I explored that whole philosophy. And then when I set out to travel around the world, I experimented with uh, ayahuasca, which I know that we'll get to at some point, which was a huge part of my transformation journey. Um, Also, uh, I went on a 10 day uh, Buddhist Vipassana retreat, uh, which is a silent meditation retreat. Uh, It's, it's awesome. It's by, um, the Goenka, SN Goenka is a famous uh, teacher. I think he was from Sri Lanka and, uh, or he was an Indian businessman who went to Sri Lanka and learned the pristine teaching of the Buddha that had been passed down for 2000 years. And that was sort of kept in this monastery of monks that had preserved it and they passed it to him and he's passed the method on. So he has since, he has since passed away, but the instruction is done through videos of him and he's an, a remarkable man. So I did that 10 day retreat. I went to the Kumbh Mela Festival in in India uh, in 2019, which is the largest religious festival in the world, 150 million people over a couple months. Yeah, bathed in the Ganges River five times, and it was a very, very special experience, so like the, the core of Hinduism. And, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've been inside Sufi mosques. I went, uh, I went to... Um, I went to, it is a, the Sikh temple, the golden temple mm-hmm. in, in Amritsar, I think is where yeah. it is. Mm-hmm. And so I went there. That was awesome. And so I've just always been really interested in exploring religion, but I found that there was something missing at the core of all the ones that I experienced. And that was a no, that was the notion of free will. So when I went looking through the new age world and Buddhism and Hinduism, there seemed to be this sort of conflicted position on what is free will, whether or not it exists. And I experienced myself as having free will. I experienced myself as being able to make free choices that don't feel compelled from any one direction. And um, that sort of led me to have a lot of questions, particularly about the new age world, which believes in karma and reincarnation. And, and, and that gets very messy. But it wasn't until I moved back to the United States after going on this big, long journey through different faiths and philosophies that um, some friends of mine uh, sent me a book and they were friends that I had met at Burning Man of all places. They were running a Christian ministry at Burning Man had been doing so for 12 years. And so I wandered into their camp one day in 2015 and had a transformative experience. And I asked them, who are you guys? Oh, they're a Christian ministry group. There were no crosses up anywhere. There was no indication they were Christian at all. They were just there doing, cause they knew that the symbol, the symbolism can put people off. So they were doing healing work. I'm like, I speak this language. These same friends sent me a book. It's called Simply Christian. It's up on my bookshelf over there. I can't reach it by N.T. Wright. And I read the book Simply Christian. And there was an image, a metaphor in that book that was of Jesus being up on the cross and all this evil from human free will washing, like a giant wave that washed up against him. And his death and resurrection drove back the wave of evil. 
And I saw that image. I got, I read that image. I'm like, I get it. I'm getting, I'm ready to pursue this faith. Now I was baptized Christian. I think it was probably about six or seven months later. And, uh, I, I went down into the water and I came back up and I was a different man and I've been Christian ever since. And it was one of the best decisions I've ever made. I've been more at peace since finding Christianity and my, my appreciation and depth of, I, I won't say understanding, but I'll use that word anyway. My depth of understanding continues to grow. Um, it's, it's as deep, if not deeper of anything else than I, that I've explored. And I feel like I've come home religiously and I'm not the only man who feels that way with Christianity lately. Beautiful. And what form of Christianity then? Obviously there's, there's many different years. There's Roman, there's Catholic, well, Catholic, Protestant. What form of Christianity is this? And whilst you get into that, what does religion mean to you in the grand scheme of things? Mm. And, And why do you think there is such a need for a religious revival in the world and the society we live in today. Mm. So what, what denomination am I? Um, I don't really know. Okay. <laughs> uh, I, 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 I was the, the people who baptized me are, are what's called Pentecostals mm-hmm. and they believe in um, like signs and wonders. And they have a, I think they have a very mystical, uh, mystical take on Christianity speaking in tongues. I guess some of them are snake handlers. My friends don't handle snakes, but they do speak. They do speak in tongues and they do inner healing work. And, you know, there's a very mystical, when I say magic, I don't mean obviously stage magic, but there's a, there's a very strong sense within, excuse me, excuse me, of Pentecostal Christianity of, of magic being very real in the world. And that's something that I relate to very deeply. Am I a Pentecostal now? I don't really know. I haven't been to a Pentecostal church. I'm Protestant of some form. Um, but you know, the, the Catholic church is making a pretty strong case. Um, I haven't really explored the Orthodox church. I know that there are some friends of mine that, um, that are Orthodox that, that say that it can, but I'm some form of Protestant is, is what I know. So your second question is why is there a need for religious survival or, or what does it mean to me to be religious now? You know, it's funny. I've, I've never, I've never really been religious before. I've always just been kind of spiritual, you know? And now to actually be part of a religion is, um, it's a learning process. It's a learning process to know that, okay, my religion now says that some things are not okay. For example, ayahuasca is a good example. From a strictly Christian perspective, ayahuasca is demonic. You know, like ayahuasca, that's the plant spirit of ayahuasca, which is a real thing, is not Jesus and is not God. And anything that is not Jesus or not God is a false God and is generally framed as demonic, right? It's not an angel. You know, I don't, I don't think it's an angel anyway. Maybe it is, but you know. So it's like, so the so my my some Christian friends told me from a Christian perspective, ayahuasca is a demon that it's a greater demon that drives out lesser demons from the body, right? So it's in the demonic hierarchy because it's not Jesus, it's not God. We don't want to deal with it if it's not Jesus and not God. And so it's like I get that, fully get it. But I had such incredibly positive experiences with it, and so have many other people in terms of true life transformation and healing. I don't know that it's that it's that clean cut. I have a, a friend of mine who went on ayahuasca uh, weekend um, here in Arizona and found Jesus on the ayahuasca weekend. So, or Jesus found him, I suppose. Like he's on the phone. Oh, what are you doing here? You know. So uh, I don't know that it's that clean cut. But what I can say is that my religion now says that that's forbidden, and I and so that's something that I can't and won't be participating in again, as much as I might want to you know, barring some sort of really deep conversation with Jesus and God about it. It's not something because my religion says that's very unfamiliar, very unfamiliar feeling, but there's stability in it because it says anything that I can, because the the promise that's made in response is that anything that I would get from ayahuasca, 
I can get from prayer and from Jesus. And yes. I found that to be true. Mm-hmm. I found that to be true. And so I wouldn't have known that unless I went on the journey that I did. Um, and I went on with an open mind and an open heart. I wasn't looking for anything. I was just curious. But so now I know that, okay, whatever I'd be going to that circle for, I can do it you know, with, with, um, with Jesus instead. And that's incredibly empowering. So it's something that I'm learning, learning how to say no to myself. And I think that's, uh, you know, that's fundamentally a very good thing because the religious path, no matter what religion you are, is one of discipline. And one of the things that the new age world gets very wrong about Buddhism is that Buddhism is a very strict religious path, but the new age world picks and chooses the aspects Mm -hmm. of Buddhism that it likes and puts it together into this feel good kind of do whatever you want, be yourself ideology. And Buddha himself was very stringent about a number of things. And I think um, a lot of people in San Francisco would be quite shocked to read some oh, of the uh, things. So just sorry to interject there, but the way yeah. you said that, it just reminded me of the uh, the satanic, you know, do as thou wilt yes. <laughs> kind of quote. So it's like, you know, they've um, almost like the great deceiver has uh, come in and, and con- confused a lot of people where it's taken a sacred religion, a, a religion of discipline, and, and basically turned it on its head and do as thou will, take the best of it and do what you want. Yes. Um, and, and it's interesting listening to you say all of those things because, like, um, you know, when we get onto the ayahuasca, we've got to do it anyway, but the, when I, one of the reasons I want to talk about ayahuasca is this is something that I've been interested in since I read the, the book by uh, Rick Strassman, you know, DMT, the mm-hmm. spirit molecule. Yep. This was about 10, 15 years ago. And um, obviously in Islam, taking drugs, is, 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 is not permissible. You're not allowed to take any type of drugs. And ayahuasca is, is a type of drug. And it's, it's not just drugs, it's basically alcohol. Basically anything which intoxicates the mind, which then does not allow you to then mm-hmm. have or be in a state of free will, which you, know, you mentioned that as well. So if, if you take you know, intoxicants and, mm-hmm. and you, you become intoxicant, then you don't really have control of your mind and therefore you're not in a position to be fully conscious of God. And, and that's the reasoning behind why alcohol and drugs are, are, are not allowed. Um, um, but yeah, the, the, the point being there, so you know, it, religion does give you rules, but there's reasons behind those rules. Now, mm-hmm. obviously, a little bit of alcohol is probably good for you, but mm-hmm. too much alcohol is bad for you. And the reason why in in, in, in the Islamic uh, religion anyway, it's not permissible is because humans have a very difficult time controlling themselves. So rather, than, <laughs> rather than giving them, you know, the guidance of just have a little bit, you'll be okay, Where uh, which led to humans basically not, controlling themselves it's just been taken out it's just not allowed and, and that's more to keep people and, and keep muslims in this like said, this state of discipline and, and worship to to towards um god so i i completely you know understand now obviously again it's something you're interested in you've done it but now you know you're taking the the road of discipline which not just from a, a religious point of view but just in general, everyday living, you need discipline. Now, mm. even if it doesn't come from religion, it has to come from somewhere, which I, I suppose leads on to the final question I asked you, why is there such a need for uh, a religious revival into their society? And I suppose a part of the answer is because of the lack of discipline in the world today. But I'll let you tackle that question uh, yeah. right now. Yeah, well, I actually, I want to back up for a second. And and um, one of the things that I learned when I was when I was in, engaging with ayahuasca when I was in Peru mm-hmm. was that there's a difference between drugs and medicine. And I think yeah. this is a really interesting discussion because people who practice ayahuasca, myself included, 
um, they don't call it a drug because it, it actually isn't a drug. And right. this is not with, this is not a, please don't take me as any sort of tempter or anything like that. No, no, it's fine. But I think, oh. it, but I think it's really important to, um, to position the difference between the two. So one of the differences between a drug and medicine is that you become desensitized to a drug. So when you drink alcohol, you have to drink more and more alcohol to get the same effect. You end up chasing this downward spiral that maybe when you get one beer and you feel a buzz, if you keep having a beer a night, then you need to have two and three. So you get desensitized, desensitized to it, but medicine, you get more sensitive to it. So with ayahuasca, the people, the ayahuascaros who've been practicing it for a while, they go from having to you know do a cup a night to just having potentially to do a little sip because their bodies become so sensitive, so sensitive to it. You also mentioned uh, free will and intoxication. Um, in my experience of being on ayahuasca is that it was, I had more free will than I ever had before. Not I mean, obviously I could have gotten up and run around and stuff like that, but the uh, traditional ayahuasca experience, you're supposed to remain on your mat in either a seated or a lying down position uh, or crouched, you know, we can't stand up or I, mean, I suppose you can, as long as you do it very quietly, but you know, so, so in terms of physical, I mean, you, they don't chain you down. So I suppose if you wanted to, it's just not recommended, but the, the amount of free will that I had to confront the things within myself was exceptional because it doesn't actually constrict consciousness um, in the way that being drunk does, for example, you know, to you know, whatever, I'll deal with it tomorrow. It actually expands consciousness. So right. the, the perceptions, the perceptions, the reason why ayahuasca ceremonies are done in the dark is because your perceptions get so heightened, you become very sensitive to light and to sound because your consciousness expands, which allows you to perceive more of what's going on inside you. So it's actually not an intoxicant and store and in a traditional, in a traditional ayahuasca ceremony that's held by a skilled, well-practiced master, like say shaman, you know, the, the, the space that's held is not one of intoxication. It's not one of party. It's not one of celebration. There are a lot of crazy stories I've heard and I don't, I'm not down with any of that. Like it's, it's, it's a healing, it's a healing technology. It's a medicine. So, you know, to that point, you know, I, I don't, I don't want me to speak theologically from the perspective of say Islam, but at the same time, like there is some nuance in the argument about ayahuasca that it's not a drug like, like marijuana would be or something like that. There is, and it's also not fun. Let me just get this out of the way right now. Like no one does ayahuasca for fun. It's also not addictive people. There are people that get into, um, they get addicted to the ceremony of it. They, they treat it like their social circle. And so they keep coming back, but the medicine itself is not addictive. Um, and it's also not, again, it's not something that you're going to do for fun. You know, you may get, you may get addicted on self-work. You know what I mean? Like, oh, I just have to work on myself because that's what I do. But the medicine itself is not. So these give ayahuasca a bit of a nuanced perspective versus other drugs, just as a way to think about it. Because what I tell people is like, look, there is, a, if you're interested, who, and I tell this to anybody, if you're interested in ayahuasca, you need to do before you do it, before you do it, two things. First is only work with someone that has been personally recommended to you. You've probably heard me say this. Someone like, don't look something up online, say, oh, that sounds good, I'll go do that. Find someone who's been or wait for someone to recommend it to you. And the second thing is if you feel a sincere call, meaning like there's something in my heart that I just cannot shake. And if you sit with it and you pray with it, then you really spend time and know whether it's genuine or not, that's a very serious thing. You know, curiosity, you know, is not the way to do it. You will get way, you can, you might, get way more than you bargained for with curiosity. But a sincere call is a sincere call for transformation, which I think many people are feeling right now, which ties me into the question about a religious revival that's going on right now. 
Um, one of the things that I think has been missing from religion for the past, I don't know how long, hundreds, perhaps even a couple thousand years, I can't really say for sure, is the notion that religion is supposed to be a transformative experience. It's not just something that you go to church or the mosque or whatever, and you do the thing because you do the thing. No, religion is supposed to bind men to God, men and women, humans to God for the purpose of transformation and purification. Those technologies, as far as I can tell, are absolutely missing from religion today. They're absolutely missing. And they're missing from the new age world too. The new age world, you know, talks a lot about feeling good and doing what's good, but in terms of actually purifying what's wrong with you, rectifying your life, making decisions, going in the direction that your soul feels called to go, the new age world doesn't deal with that. And you start going your own direction. People are like, what are you doing? You're not supposed to take this shit that seriously. Really? Really? So the thing is, is these transformation technologies used to be part of religion, the experience of the divine gnosis used to be part of religion. We used to go to priests and preachers and pastors and uh, imams and, you know, to help unite us with the divine to purify ourselves. That religion stopped being that a while ago. And so um, why is there a religious revival right now though? Because people are seeing what's happening in the world and they recognize that they can't get there from here. They know, they understand on an intuitive level that if they as individuals continue in the direction that they've been going, they're not going to make it not going to make it airlines now boarding. And they know that in order to change themselves, it begins from the inside out. And so they're looking and they know they can't look to the new age world. They know that, you know, they know that they they see what the new age world is about. They see people having no boundaries and you see men not being masculine and hippies and checked out of society, you know, and that's not it. They can't go to psychology because the psychological professions, you know, for the most part, don't really have a good feeling about men. So they turn to religion because they see structure, as you said, and discipline. And they recognize that structure and discipline is what they need in their life. And that the universe, God fundamentally is orderly, makes laws. And by adhering to right moral laws, they can transform themselves and transform their lives. And they can get to that next stage, whatever it may be, because, you know, it looks like civilization is going over the cliff. Is it going to, is it going today? Is it tomorrow? Is it 10 years from now? But it's going over the cliff. How do I go the other way? Right. And so that's why I think there's a religious revival happening because that's what it used to do for people when it used to do for civilization too. Absolutely. I mean, there was so much in there. Like I had like three or four or five different questions or things to come back there. But um, sure. just to carry on from what you just said there, like, you know, I, I totally resonate with that because, you know, one of my favorite philosophers, poet philosophers, was, was a gentleman by, by the name of Muhammad Iqbal. He's, he's quite esteemed in, in Southeast Asia, uh, the philosophical father of Pakistan, you know, he, mm. um, and he, he was around uh, 100 years ago. He was about then making, obviously, his his, his uh, philosophies and poems and, and he said something along the lines of like the world of Islam stopped thinking 300 years ago so you mm. know he's talking 100 years so that's 400 years so the point being is that Islam or religion not just Islam but all other religions were the purpose was to transform individuals it was about purifying the soul it was obviously you you come onto this planet um you know you're you've got your obviously a purpose from God which is to worship God I mean I'll I'll go to go into that separately but the whole point was you know to purify the soul do good work in this um in this world so character conduct behavior intentions these are all opportunities for you to either purify the soul or destroy the soul and another phrase from Iqbal was you know there are no right or wrong acts there are only soul uh, purifying acts or soul destroying acts 
and, and the whole point of these intentions and, 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 and actions and behavior and relationships is for you to purify your soul so that then you go back to the divine source as a purified individual. But awesome. what's happened instead is religions almost become mechanical and it's, it's just, you know, uh, a form like, you know, and, and I'm guilty of this as well because I'm, sure. I'm now trying to go back through this process um and you know like i am if i was to define my religious life over the past 30 35 years it is one of form like i i do the practices but do i really feel the spiritual transformation and there have been times when i have felt it and that's been periods where i've I've done my five daily prayers i've been reading the quran uh, and the translation Mm -hmm. of the quran i've been going to the gym meditating but what stopped all of that that all stopped when I went back into the corporate world, when I went back to yeah. university full-time, when I went back to the full-time job, because it was just too difficult to maintain that lifestyle when all of the time went on, on obviously trying to make a living, which, you know, again, comes to the, the theme that we're going to discuss and societal conditioning. Like, you know, we were conditioned that, oh, you have to go get a job. You have to become a professional. So you've, you've got to get a degree. You've got to build this career. Um, and, you know, one of the realizations that I've come in the last few months is that, you know, modern Western civilization, now that's a wide term, um, but obviously it encompasses a lot of things, but I'm talking about the education system, the economic system, the political system. Modern Western civilization is in fact in contradiction to Islam as it should be practiced. And Islam is in contradiction to modern Western civilization. And the problem that I, as a Western Muslim, but not even as a Western Muslim, because modern Western civilization has literally taken over the world. So Mm. a a lot of the problems that we face is that we've grown up with two separate philosophies. And and I'd like to think of them as two separate seeds, which have just grown into dragons. And those conflicts are inside of us, where I find it when I'm trying to get spiritual, all of a sudden, I don't care about the corporate world or making money or anything Mm -hmm. like that. But then I've also been conditioned to follow this path of career and entrepreneurship and build big businesses. And then when I see obviously posts online or anything, that side gets triggered and all of a sudden then I'm I'm having this battle to and fro. So I suppose that's one of the reasons why, you know, there's a religious revival because that corporate side or the mechanical side is just not fulfilling. It leaves you with an emptiness inside. And if you don't think about it, if you don't reflect that emptiness, you'll attribute it to something else. For example, it might be, I need to fall in love. I need to find the one. I need mm-hmm. to find the, the woman and get married. That's going to cure my emptiness. Well, you go ahead and you do it and you're happy for a while. Then you find out, hang on a minute, I'm still empty. Then, you know, yeah. you might go and buy something, you know, whether it's material possession, that kind of thing. So I totally resonate with that. So personally for you, what what's causing... Was there an emptiness inside of you? Like, what's caused the revival inside of you to, to be so strong in, in religion? Oh man, gosh, you said so much awesome stuff. <laughs> I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to pose a question or, or, or kick a thought to you. So you said that, um, you said that Islam is in is in conflict with Western society. I think what we're seeing in the world, that corporate world, there's nothing Western about it. 
I think yeah. Western, no, Western, and you know, it, we, and we all use the term like Western yeah. society. Yeah. I don't yeah. think it's Western at all. I think it's something else. I think this third thing it chose to manifest through Western society because you know they knock down, they knock God out of our civilization. Yes, yes. You know, with the Enlightenment, and yeah. so that enabled this thing to be, you know, this thing to begin devouring the world. But I don't think that thing is Western. I actually think of it as, um, excuse me, three faces. Like I think if Satan has an army, I think Satan has generals. And I think that I think that there are three generals that I've identified so far that are all walking around on Earth right now, and and they're showing up in different ways. And I think one of the generals is um, I might call it consumerism or consumer capitalism or crony capitalism. This this need to this need to produce, consume, produce, consume, produce whatever that is. This runaway notion of capitalism, right? I don't have a problem with capitalism. I think capitalism is great, but it's runaway. You know what I mean? It's 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 unconstrained by morality. I think the other one is uh, is collectivism, which shows up in communism. This idea, this idea that no, we are no differences. There's no hierarchy. We are all the same. Men and women are the same. So if you have, we'll say capitalism, communism is to, you know interesting that they're two different. We'll say runaway capitalism or consumerism, communism, and the third one is is feminism, and I and this this notion that women are the one women are the fit rulers of the earth is essentially what's going on with feminism, and so these came up through the West. But I don't think that they're particularly Western. It's just the door that they walked in yep, through. Yep. Um, so where did my where did my religion my, where did my religious I don't, I don't want to call it fervor because I'm, I wouldn't say that I'm you know banging Bibles on the corner. <laughs> I'm not doing it yet. Not doing it yet. Come, <laughs> but um, where did it come from? I I think for me it came from I've had so many experiences on 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 the other side on the spirit side with ayahuasca. You know I, I went to a I went to a a center in, as I mentioned in Peru, seven ceremonies in 12 days, you know, so there's, wow. you know, yeah, exactly. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, and it's in a retreat center, it's in the jungle, you know what I mean? There's no electricity, you know, the only light that's in the entire place is little kerosene lanterns, you know, it was, it was perfectly, it was comfortable, like meaning it wasn't, it wasn't uncomfortable. It was nicely constructed and everything, but no electricity, no, I don't know that there were ceiling fans, you know, there were, you know, the huts that we stayed in, you know, they were lovely little huts. They just had mosquito netting instead of windows. You know what I mean? So it was completely back to nature, you know, no technology, obviously compost toilets and everything like that. So it was really being in the medicine space for 12 days. And you spend that much time, you know, on the other side, it becomes very difficult to deny that there's a spiritual dimension to reality. Very difficult. And, and that's, that's the position that a lot of atheists make is that there's no, there's no God, but what they're really saying is there is no spiritual dimension to reality. And so what I say to these people is like, okay, go drink ayahuasca for just do it three nights in a row and then talk to me. You know what I mean? Cause then you go swimming around on the other side, you wade out a little bit into the water, you know, like imagine an ayahuasca ceremony is like a whole bunch of people on the beach. And then there's the lifeguard up there on the tower. Right. And then, so you drink and then you go like, and this is not to encourage anyone to do it if they don't otherwise feel called, but then you go wading a little bit into the water and maybe you swim around and you look at the little corals under the water. Or maybe you just dip your feet in or whatever, and then you come back onto land, but there's still the ocean, right? Right. And so, so the thing is that that's, I had had experiences like that. I did that 10 day silent meditation retreat in, uh, in the mountains of Kashmir, um, you know, 10 hours of meditation a day for 10 days, total oh. silence, no talking, you know, getting up at four o'clock in the morning to meditate for two hours. And, you know, I had done quite a bit of self-work, not to mention all the, the psychological transformation that I had done through therapy and stuff, seeing the way that my mind and my decisions create my reality. So then when I sit down to do the meditation for 10 days, 
I saw stuff, man. Oh man. You know, you just, you can't deny that there's a spiritual dimension to, I can't, I can't after seeing everything that I have. And so as soon as I found a place that I could put my faith down and say here, then I was like, I finally arrived Lord. And now that, and now I know you're real. I don't have any doubt. I don't have any doubt. Like, yes. Did I have, did I know that there was God? Yes. Did I know there was a spiritual dimension? Yes. But the difference was that I was finally willing to say, Jesus, Jesus Christ is the son of God. And to discover once I made that proclamation of faith, once I was baptized to have spent the past year diving in so deeply and to see just how true that is and how absolutely heartbreakingly beautiful it is. It's beautiful in a way. No other faith I've ever found is it's, it's just, it's elegant. And that's one of the things that the physicists say is that, you know, that you've discovered a real theory of reality when you discover that it's elegant and somehow the, there's a famous book by the author, Brian Greene called the elegant universe all about, it's about string theory and stuff like that. And I find that the, that Christianity is fundamentally such an elegant story that it bears the marks of the, the hand of an author. And that author is God. And I'm quite happy being there now. So um, it makes sense after a very long journey. Brilliant, brilliant. Uh, I absolutely love that. Now, um, yeah, I mean, to circle back on what you said, obviously, I, I did use Western civilization and, sure, and I sure. completely agree with um, your assessment there. So, I, I mean, I'd reframe it as yeah. the Dajjalic system, which uh, Dajjal is the, the mm. name of the Antichrist in, uh, in, in Islam. Um, and he's the great deceiver. And, and I would say mm. Western, not Western civilization, but what's been born out has been this system of deception which mm-hmm. you know one of the attributes of, of of the dajjal you know it said that on in one hand you'll have water which really will be fire in the other hand you'll have fire which really will be water those who choose the water will really choose the fire those who choose the fire will really have water which basically is this concept of of deception that this world present or in his rule this world is going to be such a deception that that which seems like heaven is in fact going to be hell and that would mm-hmm. seem like hell is in fact going to be heaven and you know purely mm-hmm. from a, an allegorical point of view like that's the world we live in right now you know it all seems glitz and glam but if you take away all of that you'll see so many miserable people like they're rotting and, and yeah. they're empty and, and, and they're dying and obviously this is why anxiety and suicide are, are on the rise um and, and, and my personal belief is it's because people have moved away from the essence and the spirit of religion and, mm-hmm. and it's they're left with this almost shell and unformed like behavior and to go back on on obviously ayahuasca now um i i i like the fact that you obviously you clarified it's, it's more of a medicine than a drug um, and i should clarify here like you know I, i'm not a religious scholar i'm not a religious um you know uh, expert to, to say whether it's halal or haram i've i've made the assumption that ayahuasca is haram uh, or not permissible because I viewed it as not only as a drug, but some of the other elements which I'm about to talk about. Um, mm-hmm. But obviously, drugs are—you know—you can get drugs like paracetamol. These are permissible because they are medicine. So, mm-hmm. if if ayahuasca is purely a medicine, then it wouldn't be considered, um, you know, uh, illegal. But I suppose with ayahuasca, there's ov- obviously there's an element of obviously you call it, it expands your consciousness. Um, but there's a hallucinogenic kind of, you know, you're, you're seeing things which you wouldn't normally see w- without it. Um, and this goes back to the study of, of the book and where people, uh, Rick Strassman in his experiment, 
people that took ayahuasca were having obviously different experiences and they were communicating with beings of some sort. Um, now, those beings, they might be jinn, they might not be jinn. Obviously, in, in the Islamic tradition, jinn are beings which coexist with humans. But once again, humans are not allowed to uh, communicate with jinn, although humans do do that. And mm-hmm. jinns are not allowed to communicate with uh, humans. And that, that might be a stretch. Now, I might be completely well off, but this idea of other beings that, you know, I suppose what I got from the, the book itself was the experience that people had depended on their state of mind before they were going in. So if they were suffering from trauma, negativity, anxiety, when they went on ayahuasca, they would have a a scary experience. Whereas those that were more peaceful and happy, they would have a more pleasant experience. Would you say that that was the same experience for you and people that did it with you, or is that completely off? The one thing about ayahuasca is that it's predictably unpredictable. (laughs) Okay. It's impossible. It's impossible to say what any person's experience might be. I've had, and a lot of it depends on on your intention. Like, what is it that you're looking for as you go into the ceremony or the cycle of ceremonies? Some people will have profound cosmic visions. You know, I've seen giant clocks turning in the universe and and a giant you know waterfall of light coming out of my heart. You know, completely. I, I wouldn't say disembodied, but sort of like a in this other space, in this other realm, like a dream, a bit like a very hyper vivid dream. Um, I've also had very, very difficult circumstances where I had, I bit off more than I could chew and I felt like I was falling and some people feel like they're dying. And, you know, that's a thing. And it often, it often happens that people will drink a couple cups and nothing happens at all. They just lie there completely dead stone sober. They don't see or feel anything and they just fall asleep. And no one really knows why that happens the way that it does. They, um, the, the the shamans will say it's the medicine decides. You know, there's a consciousness element element to it. Um, I w- there's it's impossible impossible for me to say what anyone's experiment experience will be from moment to moment, from literally from one moment to the next. Um, I've gone through waves of you know crying fits where I just had to get it out to waves of profound peace and insight into my own life. But what I can say is this is what the presence of the shaman and the community is supposed to be. So it's not just you as the, um, as the participant, let's say, in the room alone. You know, you're not. You're in a room with 30 other people who all, if you, this is why I recommend traditional ceremonies, because traditional ceremonies, they do what's called the sacred silence and the sacred stillness. You're not supposed to get up and move around any more than is necessary. Obviously, you have to go to the bathroom or something fine, but you're supposed to lie still on your on your mat, you know, and, and, and just be inward and you're not supposed to make sounds. You're just supposed to, whatever you would want to express outwardly in sound or motion, you keep it, you keep it inward and everyone does that together. And that creates what's called the container that everyone's in, that we've all agreed to abide by these rules. And that really does a good job of holding the energy. And in addition to the shaman himself, there are a number of different facilitators, you know, like if you want to get up and go to the bathroom and you're a little wobbly, they'll walk, they'll come over in a traditional ceremony and help walk you to the bathroom because they're sober. Right. So they're there holding the space and that can be as many as, as five or, or, or six people, you know, for 30. So everyone's really held. And then you have the shaman uh, himself. Well, and also, sorry, I should say there's also in the ceremonies that I've been in, there's also another, there's also two other people who are like facilitators just watching in general. So you have the logistical helpers, you know, who are taking care of doors, leading people in and out of the space. Right. And then you have other, you know, members who are just, who are holding like this elder energy, 
where they're just keeping a keeping the, with their conscious intention, keeping a watch over everybody. And then you have the shaman himself or herself, however many you have, and they're singing songs and they're on the spirit. They're in the spirit world. They're masters of the spirit world. And they're serving as guides. I don't, I can't even, I would love to know what a shaman perceives in his or her mind's eye in a room full of people who are doing the, I would, ugh, what I wouldn't give to see that. You know what I mean? Like besides, I suppose, becoming a shaman myself, but, but I mean, to really, you know, the shaman is there overseeing the grand symphony of healing that's taking place between the, the members of the end of the group and the individuals themselves, almost like a, like a conductor is looking at the performers of the symphony and saying, okay, you know, the first chair violin needs to pick it up a little bit and that drum back there, you know, and just bringing everyone together into harmony. And it's, a, it's, it's not what it may seem in terms of like, I just drank this thing and I had a, an experience like, no, it's, it's very, to say orchestrated means it's planned in some sense, but it's very coordinated. It's very living. It's very fluid. And there's, what that means is from an individual perspective, there's lots that you can draw on to find strength in difficult moments as you're going through your healing transformation, whether it be your own inner strength, the strength of God, the medicine, the various plant spirits that come and help the medicine, the shaman, the facilitators, sometimes even the people around you or sacred objects that you have that ground you to who you are. It is very much, it's work. It's very much work. It's, I, mean, I know that a lot of people who talk about ayahuasca, they talk about it as, oh, I saw this thing. It did this thing and it was so cosmic, whatever. Man, ayahuasca is work. It's at its best, at its best, ayahuasca is hard work. And it should be because the process of transformation, the process of ridding ourselves of childhood trauma, generational trauma, mistaken beliefs about ourselves, really cracking ourselves open and going into the core of what we are takes work. And you have to draw on that. This is what I say. Like it doesn't actually, um, it doesn't compromise your free will at all. In fact, at home, in my experience at the peak moments I've had of ayahuasca, it honed my free will. It forced me to truly exercise free will. I don't want to say for the first time in my life, but really, you know, for some of the first times in my life where it's like, I have to make a decision right now, whether I'm going to do this thing, whether I'm going to experience this, whether I'm going to continue through and see this project, see this process through. And that's the purest essence of free will. And so it takes a lot of strength to do that. And this is why I get very, um, I can get, as you can tell, I get very animated when I hear public discussions of ayahuasca, because I think they massively mischaracterize it. They, they, I don't think that they know what they're doing. I don't think they've been properly introduced to it. I don't think they're using it properly. And I really wish this discussion would disappear from the, the public sphere and the space that it's taking right now. I, I think it needs to take a go back behind the curtain and we're going to work out our stuff. And then we're going to come back out and talk about it in the right way. The one exception to that, I will say, is my friend, uh, Jason, he runs the Universe Within podcast. I was on his podcast for four hours. I think it was one of the first ones I ever appeared on. He holds, he, he holds um, discussions about ayahuasca that I think are appropriately, let's say, reverential. But for most of the discussions of ayahuasca in the public sphere, it completely leaves out the transformative potential of work that really comes into it. And that, you know, you don't, I don't, I don't, there were some mornings that I would wake up and I wasn't like, oh, I'm so refreshed. What a great little vacation. Like, no, I was tired. I was beat. Like, you know what? I'm going to go back to my room and pass out. But I, it, that's the work. That's self-work. It was transformative. And, and for that reason alone, it's worth doing if that's the sort of person you are, which, you know, not everyone is. And that's fine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's, there's a lot of tackling in, in, in there. But um, 
I mean, I, I've interviewed a, a, a shaman uh, in oh. one of these podcasts. So, you know, he talked to me about his experience and the, the experience that other people have. And when I had um, Ajak on, on on the podcast, he talked about his experience as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I've, you know, I, I used to drop some posts on, on social media and I've had people contact me saying, don't do it, uh, et cetera, warning me from doing it. Um, but what I get is obviously this is a, a very unique experience to the individual and you don't know what you're going to get. Um, ultimately, it depends on what's going on in, in yourself internally, psychologically. But even then, you know, it's, it's obviously it's still going to be a very unique experience, which, like you said, you cannot predict it. Um, so I suppose my interest is then obviously going back to those beings. Like, did you communicate with any beings or intelligent uh, elements or anything like that? Because I've there's been a lot of stuff. I mean, even like I said, the first I came across this was the book by Dr. Rick Strassman at most of them individuals in that experiment communicated with some kind of intelligent being. Uh, and a lot of the people that have talked to me about it said they had, they did um, communicate with, with a being. In fact, the shaman himself that I had on, he said he communicated with a being that identified himself as Jesus, uh, as wacky as that sounds. Um, and really? and uh, so this idea, I mean, going back to, did you, did you have any kind of communication like that or was it just, a personal transformation that you dealt with yourself? I did not have any beings approach me and ask to have a conversation with me. Let's put it that way. Did I witness? Did I witness beings? Yes. Uh, And I would identify those beings as having different intentions towards me. I have seen, I have seen beings that had positive intentions towards me that worked with ayahuasca and seemed to be um, conducting healing energetic healing work on me. Let's put it that way, you know, radiating beams of light into my body and, and removing, you know, t- removing various things, removing various blockages. I have had that experience. I've also had lots of experience both with ayahuasca and on the Vipassana retreat of, of beings that wanted to, um, we'll say prey on my energy beings of various degrees of complexity um, from everything from, for example, amoebas, you know, just feeding on leaky energy food sources. Cause that's what they do because they don't have a high level of consciousness to beings that, you know, the sort of things that would cluster around heat vents at the bottom of the ocean floor, like, oh, I just go where the warmth is, is all the way up to beings that, um, you know, were perhaps consciously predatory, quite like animals and, and more. So um, this is, again, I mean, I've, I've seen all of these things and it's not something that's easy to talk about, but, you know, this is why the presence of the shaman is so important and why you don't go, you know, get some ayahuasca from the dark web and go wander off into the forest. Because when you open yourself up on all those levels, um, you know, you're, you're basically announcing to various beings of various levels of complexity and unknown intentions that you're, you're, um, you're now available and perhaps you will get lucky and an angel will come to your rescue and protect you from predators, but perhaps you're, perhaps you're not and the being will approach you, you know, clothed in light and you won't be necessarily aware of what its true intentions are. And that's the thing that's really complicated when talking about disembodied beings is that um, it can be very difficult. And I was having this discussion with someone yesterday, actually, there are various practices that you can do through various occult or hermetic or new age or whatever meditative practices where you can establish contact with higher beings. The problem is, is that that being is smarter than you because it's on a higher level of consciousness than you. It knows more about you than you probably recognize that it does. And probably then you know about yourself because it's perceiving you from outside time. If, if nothing else, it knows what you were doing five minutes ago. Right. And so this being can approach you. And do you have any way of truly sussing out what this being's intention is. It may say it wants the best for you. How do you know that's true? 
you have no way of knowing that's true. It may ask for sacrifices or it may ask for something and promise something, but unless your spiritual discernment is phenomenally high, you might not, you might not understand that you're being taken advantage of. My understanding of disembodied beings that are of a positive variety that will, they will never contact you on, on, this is my understanding. They'll never contact you on their own. Like an, a true angel won't ever walk up and be like, Hey, what's going on? You know what I mean? If someone walks up and knocks on your door, you can, you can reach out to connect with them, like as with prayer through the saints and stuff like that. But for the most part, my understanding based on what I've read is that they're just not going to, they're just going to leave you alone. They don't interfere in people's lives. So, you know, for the point of, you know, contact with disembodied beings, yes, you can do these things. Do I recommend it? No, <laughs> you know, and this is why, this is why Islam, I think forbids contact with jinn because yes. you don't know, you don't know what that thing is. You don't know what it wants. You know what I mean? And, and, uh, and you don't know what its intentions truly are. And this is the, and I, this was what I was saying yesterday. This is why prayer to Jesus is so powerful because if you pray to Jesus, specifically the phrase, the blood of Jesus is very powerful. That phrase is, is, appears to be very powerful just inside my own heart. As I sit with that, you know, that that prayer is going directly to Jesus and nowhere else. <laughs> no one is going to, you know, spam phishing, that, you know, that particular prayer, let's say, you know, or to God, that there are very powerful words to use beyond the, and this is why I tell, I warn people away from occult practices. If they're interested in them, you got no idea who you're talking to, not me, but you know, if you're reaching out to disembodied beings that are promising power or wisdom or knowledge or prosperity, you got no idea what they want in exchange for that. You know, it's better to, it's better to serve God and to sacrifice some of your pride and your personal desires to serve them, to serve a higher, we'll say a higher, um, a higher ideal or a higher path. Um, you may not get what you want, but you get what you need to borrow. The freaking Rolling Stones can't believe absolutely love it. And 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 you know, I'm I'm smiling and I'm laughing because literally yesterday I had an occult practitioner on on the podcast. Like oh, wow. I recorded it yesterday, so I haven't actually released the uh, the video. And you know, even he was talking about the the power of words um, and, and and the power of sounds. And you know, he is a practitioner of Solomonic. Uh, magic so uh, uh he, he was talking about obviously i mean i get it I've this hierarchy it of, of 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 demons or you know for want of a better word um and basically using that to to get these beings to help humans to get what they want uh but in in, in uh, according to him obviously this this was an intelligent person obviously when you think of uh, cults uh, you think you know the the satanists and this kind but no it was it was not no, no, no. this was a very intelligent articulate person like i really enjoyed uh, the conversation I, I i learned a lot um, yeah yeah for sure but um you know you know again it, this is more out of an interest like i have an interest in these things but like i, I would never i would never do it obviously because it is not allowed in in, in islam but mm-hmm. even if There's it wasn't reason. islam i don't think i'd do it because of the the dangers because as you mentioned there you just don't know what yourself what you're opening yourself up to and i'm going back to again ayahuasca i suppose the the point of ayahuasca is if i'm understanding it correctly is it's it's, it's dmt which is the the chemical that uh, um, is the powerful chemical. And, you know, I, I don't know if it's been proven yet, but the theory was that DMT is released from, from the brain. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, you can use ayahuasca to obviously um, increase that and increase the, uh, the, the trip that you have, the experience that you have, or the other way, which you mentioned at the very start, the other way is through intense meditation. Um, mm-hmm. And I suppose this is mm-hmm. where my interest lies because yes, I, I like hearing about these stories of ayahuasca, but I wouldn't do it. However, I am interested in 
experiencing something like that, not from taking ayahuasca, but from spiritual practice and meditation, um, because this also links back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of purifying the soul. So mm-hmm. when you meditate, obviously when you're using, uh, obviously you, you said uh, Jesus's name, but for us it would be, you know, the, the 99 names of God or the other practices. You know, this is not just meditation. It's literally purifying the soul. And yes. as you pray, purifying your soul, as you go into these deeper levels of meditation, you're ascending, you know, you're spiritually ascending into the, you know, the different heavens or the different dimensions or however you want to describe it. But that in and of itself, going through that process, that discipline, that concentration, that focus, you know, yes, it might take you months, years to reach the same state, as an ayahuasca trip might give you in, in a few hours, but that process is almost like, you know, shedding the, or basically protecting you from any negative attacks from any negative beings because you're going through this disciplined process of mm-hmm. purifying yourself so that when you do eventually reach the stage of, you know, in, in I think in, um, in the Eastern tradition, they call it nirvana, you know, when you're in that state, you're in a state of being absolutely purified and your experience is going to be one of ecstasy rather than anxiety, um, which again links back to another quote by Iqbal, which I mentioned earlier. And, you know, his other quote was, heaven and hell are not localities, they are states of mm-hmm. the mind. Hell is man's painful realisation of his failures in life, basically regret, anxiety, whereas heaven is the joy of triumph over the force of disintegration. <laughs> so the idea being that, you know, hell is, isn't going to be a, a place per se. It's going to be the state of your mind, the state of your soul, depending on your actions, intentions, behaviours in life. You're either going to be, you know, triumphant and satisfied and content with everything that you did, or you're going to be in a state of anxiety and regret. And, you know, the fire of hell is the fire of your heart, of that regret, and all of, of the, you know, the, the missed opportunity to really use your life for the purpose that it should be, which is, you know, you are the most elevated being. You're the highest being that God's created. God has favored you above all the other beings. He has given you the gift of free will. How did you use that free will? Did mm-hmm. you use it to make yourself better, to make the world better, to be a, a guardian of the earth, to be, a, uh, you know, one of the um, purposes of life of, of you know, Islam is to worship God. But how do you worship God? Well, you worship God by knowing God, so knowledge of God, but also being a vicegerent of God on earth. We have the responsibility of being caretakers and cultivators of this planet. Have we fulfilled that responsibility or did we go down this road of trying to fulfill selfish desires, trying to you know, accumulate wealth? Now, I'm not attacking accumulation of wealth, but what I'm saying is mm-hmm. accumulating wealth to the detriment of the uh, impact that you're having. You know, Obviously, this... The Jalic system, you know, I'll use that word is, you know, you've, all, you've got this system where people want to be successful, they want to be rich, they want to be famous, regardless of the impact of what they have on other people. So, you know, they might cheat, they might steal, they might do all this kind of corruption. And yeah, they might attain uh, status in this life. But what they've actually done is they've made status and wealth their God because they've neglected the real God. Uh, and, and, and their responsibilities in this life and, and for the next. Um, and, you know, so going back to the ayahuasca thing, this is where my interest really lies, is trying to achieve those states from meditation 
rather than just taking ayahuasca. Now, obviously, you've talked about you've taken ayahuasca, mm. but you also mentioned that you can reach these states from meditation. So mm. have you tried doing this? Like, what is your thoughts on, on that process? So I, I achieved, I, I didn't actually realize, I didn't think of it this way, but yes, you actually can release DMT through meditation because that was happening to me on the Vipassana retreat. But I, there were also people who were on the retreat. It's a 10, it's a 10 day. It's a very rigorous, very rigorous meditation process. I think it's, um, I think the website is dharma, D-H-A-R-M-A.org, where you can look up Goenka, Vipassana, Goenka is G-O-E-N-K-A and uh, Vipassana, Goenka meditation. Um, it's a very rigorous program. Like I said, you're up at four o'clock in the morning, meditating for two hours and then a break. And then you have one hour and it's silent. And, um, but there's a specific kind of sitting that's done during these sessions. Um, I, gosh, I can't remember the name of it, but what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to sit, uh, cross-legged, um, unmoving for an hour. And for a lot of people, uh, like myself who grew up in the West, you sit in chairs, sitting cross-legged on the ground for an hour can lead to, you know, uh, uh, numbness because the nerve gets cut off. So like you're not actually like nothing, you're not doing anything to your body, but it hurts like hell. So a lot of people find those particular sittings to be very difficult because you're doing a series of mental practices of self-observation while your leg is getting numb. And then the numbness is becoming pain. And then you have to penetrate to the center of the pain to find it's a very, very difficult process to do. A lot of people will leave those meditation sittings by around day three, when that is introduced, because they just can't do it. And a lot of people will sit for 10 days and not have the same kind of like truly cosmic experiences that I, that I had. And so I, I think I see meditation and self-work through ayahuasca as being, they're very, very linked, you know, mm -hmm. um, for the people who aren't, who are, who are listening, I've got my hands linked together on the screen. Um, because I think in order to be successful in meditation, you have to have achieved some tranquility inside your mind and in your heart, and uh, you have to be healthy in body um, for sure. Like if you have if you have physical ailments that can be remedied somehow, you know, through taking better care of your body, um, you know, those will be those will be a distraction while you're trying to meditate, right? If you if you know for various things going on, but the the greater peace you can achieve with yourself and with your life, you know, prior to sitting for meditation. So if you do the self work to find peace with your past to find peace with your parents. As Jesse Lee Peterson says, have you forgiven your mother? Have you forgiven your father? Um, which I, I finally just forgave my mother like, like yesterday. It was incredible. Oh. Um, yeah, there's a whole other story with that. Um, you know, because it's something I've been thinking out for, about for a while and I don't mean to sound casual, like, oh, I just finally forgave my mother. Like, it's <laughs> yeah. been a very, that's a big process for many yes. of us to go through is, is that process of forgiveness. So the more work that you or I or any of us can do in that process, to, to find peace with our past and, and find peace with our present, the more we'll be able to sink into meditation and truly achieve those transcendent states. Because what'll happen when you sit in meditation is those will be the first things that come up. You know, the, the thing that that person said all those years ago that was hurtful or that, that pain in your heart as a result of, we'll say, abandonment or, or something like that. And those will be demand, those will demand to be encountered right? First, the health will come up like, oh, my back hurts, you know, because my, because my abdominal muscles are weak because, you know, I don't exercise enough. Something as simple as that, it'll be a distraction. And then you'll deal with the emotional stuff. Well, first you'll deal with the, what's called the monkey mind, the, the thoughts, you know what I mean? Like jumping from thing to thing, this news story, that news story, that text message or whatever. And then when you get past the mental level, then you get to the emotional level. And a lot of people won't be able to achieve those higher states of consciousness because they'll be stuck in their emotional level and they'll try to avoid 
those inner emotional realities. And they won't ever be able to achieve the higher states because the only way out is through. You have to go through those things. And the way that you go through those things is inner self-work, however that appeals to you. It can be therapy. It can be men's groups. It can be ayahuasca. It can be dance therapy. It can be art therapy. It can be body work. It can be you know, all kinds. It can be reading books. It can be journaling. There's all different ways to heal our inner lives based on our own unique personality configurations. But when you finally go through that inner work, when you when you when you take the bucket and you empty you you bucket out bucket out the reservoir which i had been doing for many years then you get to the possibility where you can begin to achieve those those higher states but it, again as you say with the discipline that's part of the discipline not just the sitting and meditating every day because i think there's a component of meditation that can become very escapist like i'm going to sit and i'm going to meditate and i'm going to use this time to avoid reality and i'm going to just check out to some higher numb state versus sensitizing you to your everyday experience. I think that's the true purpose of meditation. That's why I'm very opposed to the meditation. Well, I don't want to say very opposed. I'm in many ways opposed to the practice of meditation in the workplace, because I think meditation in the workplace is used to numb people so that they can get mm -hmm. along better, work better together. Now, I don't have a problem with people working well together. What I do have a problem is, is the idea that meditation is some sort of productivity tool. It isn't. Meditation is a, is a tool for becoming deeply acquainted with who you are as a being and getting to know God. And if the only reason that you practice meditation is so that you can be pro more productive in the day, there's nothing wrong with that, but you're missing the real beauty of meditation, which is self-knowledge. And so I think a lot of people lose that and they will check out to higher spiritual states instead of going into the root of who they are, coming out transformed, and then you'll be ready and then you'll be purified and then you'll be able to stand in the light of God without shame, which I think is what everyone really wants. But that's, you know, again, in our commercialized, commoditized world, you know, meditation is the hot new thing that everyone's doing. There's all the apps for it. And it's like, you know, I've done like all the 301 level headspace stuff, you know, because I, I did headspace for a while because I was getting ready for this meditation retreat. So I signed up with headspace. I'm like, okay, let me go all the way through. And I got all the way to like 301, which is like the most advanced. Like if you're really interested in just pure meditation, here's the advanced thing. And it's like an hour of silence. Like, thanks for that. <laughs> you know what I mean? And there wasn't any like, you may be encountering some really troubling memories from your childhood coming up right now. Just sit with them. There wasn't any of that. And, you know, which I understand why, because it's not something that an app can help you with in that way. But I think it's an important part of meditation to truly encounter the stuff that wounds you on a physical, mental, and emotional level and to heal it before you can truly, you can truly have um, union with God, which is what, what people are looking for. Um, and so that's my rant about that. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Love it. And what, what I really appreciate about this conversation is, you know, I'm talking from a Muslim perspective and you're talking from a Christian perspective, but we were talking about the same thing, really. Same thing, and, yeah. And, you know, I when you're it. talking about the, the higher, uh, you know, the higher levels and the higher states, like I'm also reminded of, of the, uh, the, I think it's the Hindu tradition or the Buddhist tradition, where they've got the seven chakra levels or chakra, how you pronounce yeah. it. And um, what I find interesting about that is, you know, that is also um, in conjunction with what we're talking about, because if I remember correctly, the, the lowest states, the, the two lowest chakras are the, you know, the, the, the sexual one and the, the stomach one. In other words, you know, we're talking about sexual energy and, and then hunger and desire. Um, and, you know, when we talk about 
and, and certainly in Islam, and I'm sure Christianity has the same, there are rules and prohibitions around sex and, and, and hunger. You know, in, in Islam, obviously, we mm. fast, we've got the 30 days of fasting. Uh, Ramadan is one of the five pillars of Islam. Um, there's obviously, there's many rules around sex, and that you're not allowed to go out and fornicate. Sex is a, a, a divine union between two people who are married. And I suppose that comes mm-hmm. from, you know, marriage is, is, is a ceremony. It's this kind of a ritual. It's a purifying ritual. And then when you uh, make love, again, it's another purifying ritual where, you know, you, you, you get to experience some of the divine essence. And then the greatest gift of all, which is giving birth, comes from, from that. But I suppose what I'm trying to get at is the discipline around the lower states the discipline around the sexual chakra mm-hmm. and the 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 desires uh is the first step towards spiritual ascension and then as you mm-hmm. go up then you obviously you've got all your, your heart chakra your, your throat and everything else and, and that's where all the emotions and and everything else you know you've got to deal with and as you deal with those issues the higher you ascend and, and i suppose the world we live in right now the majority seem to be trapped in those two lower chakras where yes. you know this is a sexually deviant world you know it's it's there's there's no rules there's no prohibition it's basically do as thou will and the same way with mm. hunger and desire like you know the amount of diseases and problems just from overeating and not just overeating just eating the wrong food now that might not be mm-hmm. uh, totally the the fault of the individual because that's just a society we live in and and the whole system the whole you know the the the, the jalic system I'll, I'll use that word again you know it's who can you trust now? Because we're at this stage where you can't really trust the science because the science nope. is politicized. This, uh, you know, yeah. the science isn't based on fact. It's based on who's paying the most money, and 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 uh, the same with all the corporations and the media. Uh, but it just seems that we're all the majority are stuck on these lower levels, which is what's causing the emptiness, which is what's causing the search for higher states. And going back to the theme of this podcast, the revival of religion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I love what you said about about people being stuck in the lower states because you're right. So the three lowest chakras are uh, there's the root chakra, which has to do with um, mostly with shelter and stability on Earth. So the chakras aren't necessarily bad things; they're just in different layers yeah. of our consciousness that need to be that need to be healed. And 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 of course, being in a low state of consciousness is not is not great. But there's nothing intrinsically wrong with each of the yeah, chakras; yeah. they're just different levels of us as beings. So there's the root chakra, which has to do a lot with um, which has to do a lot with food, shelter, water, like the base biological needs of the being. Then one level up is the is the sexual chakra, which is just below uh, the belly button, um, or sort of like in that sort of like a sacrum yeah. area, is perhaps what that's called. That's around sex and desire and reproduction, which is what we do as beings. That's what our genes do. That's what we mm-hmm. do. And then one level above that has to do with um, other forms of other forms of desire and, and willpower in particular. That's the sternum, our willpower and our directedness towards the world. And so, yes, it's very easy. And a lot of people are very stuck in those lower levels of consciousness. And, and we talked about toxic masculinity earlier. And I think it would be, it might be fair to say that a man exhibiting what would be called toxic masculinity or ta- toxic behaviors in that way is stuck in those lower level, levels of consciousness. He's pursuing food, he's pursuing pleasure, and he's pursuing, pursuing his will. In fact, I'm going to use this from now on. Great. He's, he's pursuing his, his individual personal will over and above um, everyone else around him. You know, it's just people are objects to be used, right? Whether that be women, whether that be men, whether that be the environment, whatever, like you, you objects to use in fulfillment of his own 
personal will and desires divorced from anything else. He's eating too much, whatever. So that, so, so that there's that, but there's another side to that is that there are also men that live exclusively from the, the, the chakras up the heart. Cause the heart, heart chakra is the one in the middle. It's number four of seven. I guess you might say it's the dividing line between the upper chakras and the lower chakras. It's the mediator. And so the, um, and so the upper chakras are speech, uh, insight in speech is the throat, which makes sense insight. It's the mind, the third eye, and then the chakra of spirit. Uh, which is the crown and the heart is the mediator between the uh, above and the below in the being, right? So you have men that are living almost entirely in their lower chakras, serving their own needs and, and desires. And then you, but you also have men, you know, maybe the soy boys or the flow boys or whatever you call them that are just from the neck up that are very disconnected from their physical desires. Mm-hmm. And they, they think that they're living from their heart, but really their heart, their heart is a wall between what's going on deeply in them. They're very believe this used to be me. They're very cut off from their bodies. There are other men that are too cut out that are too in their bodies and they're not connected to their other higher centers. And that's the state of men today. And that's the state of a lot of the world, you know, and in, in, in that you can probably meet, I'm more familiar with how it shows up in men, but it's probably in women. Well, it's probably in women too, but it's different. I have to think about that, but definitely in men, you see these two halves of men. And the thing is, is that, uh, you know, you look at say the soy boys on one side and the super macho meatheads or whatever, you know, on the other side. And what I tell people is that these are not two different species of men. This is the whole alpha beta thing, right? You know, so you say uh, alpha seed, beta need, however you want to phrase that. And the way that it shows up in the dating world, and I'll bring it all the way back. The way this shows up in the dating world is that a woman will generally date an exciting quote unquote alpha male who's risky and edgy and self-directed and, you know, knows what he wants, but he's not he's not romantic. He's not sensitive. He's not in touch with his emotions. And ultimately that relationship will burn out and then she'll go date a nice guy. And the nice guy is really nice and takes good care of her, but he has no fire. He has no passion. He's kind of boring. Right. And then so she'll date the, you know, date the asshole and bounce back and forth between the two. And then some women reach an age, you know, maybe where they even have kids and they've settled for a nicer guy, hopefully. And they recognize like, if this is all men are men are shit right? If I have to choose between these two different species of men, neither of which is fulfilling, men must be terrible. And so then they become susceptible to the lies of feminism. But here's the thing, they're not wrong. They're not wrong about what they're observing observing in men. But what they don't realize is that those two different kinds of men are not two different men. They're one man who's been broken in half, who's Mm -hmm. been shattered in half by 150 years of industrialization and war. And I can go through that whole process of how we got to this fallen state. And so what I'm doing in the Renaissance and what many other men are doing is trying to knit those two halves of men back together. If you're a, a sensitive, thoughtful, emo- emotion, feeling centric man, you know, who's struggling to connect with his passion, then you need to go find a band of brothers. This is what we started out the conversation with saying passive, maybe you're passive aggressive, or maybe you don't know, maybe you're an, a nice guy, like, like I used to be, or maybe you're, um, or maybe you're in a nerd culture and you need to be reacquainted with your fire. Go find a band of brothers for that. Similarly, if you're a guy who's too much in your lower centers and your lower chakras, too much about your desires and your will, and you don't have any sensitivity, then go find men that teach you that side of yourself and learn to cultivate it. And that's how you become a complete whole man. That is the renaissance, the renaissance of men. And, and, you know, so a lot of the criticisms, like I said, of, of women's, they don't understand that they're not looking at, at two different men. They're looking at one man who's been shattered in half. And, and so that's been my story is knitting those two halves of myself back together. And the beautiful thing about this moment that I think we're living through religiously is that now um, religion 
has the opportunity to become a transformative technology again that reunites man with God because now the teachings of religion um, that used to be reserved for great stories have have been taken out, right? But we're rediscovering them through myths. When myths hold the keys to psychology, which is what you're doing right now with the whole Minotaur thing, which I love, which I love. And so that so myths through the power of, of deep psychological understanding, Jungian psychological, Jungian and Jungian analysis have the possibility to reunite us with a lot of the deep meaning that lives within us so that we can transform and can return to religion and find the meaning that was there all along, but that was kind of stripped out of, you know, when things remain mechanistic. And so I think the religious revival is a very natural outcropping of a lot of different fields of streams of thought colliding together, particularly in the lives of men that are hungry for more, you know, and that are like, you know, as you discovered, you know, I go looking, I go looking for religion, I find I'm really fulfilled, but then I go looking towards, you know, entrepreneurship and success, and it drags me away, and I bounce back and forth, you know, parallax over here, and then over here. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so I, I think it makes sense that this is happening in the world of men. By the way, the Renaissance of men is not something that I invented. It's just a name that I gave a thing that was already, that was already happening. And I think it's a good way of, under, of understanding it. And I think the religious aspect is a big component. And by the way, just before, just before I hand the ball back to you, I do want to say, I love that we're talking religion and I've never heard anyone talk about uh, Islam in the way that you are. Oh, so I think okay. this is, I mean, really, no, this is not something I think you, you, you probably know that there are people in the West that have like a zero negative understanding of Islam. And so to know that, you know, to be acquainted with some of the deeper teachings of it, where would I go for that? You know, so it's it's meaningful to me to hear this reflected in your religion because that's the one spiritual tradition that I don't have experience with. Ah. So, so it's great to <laughs> hear sure, all this I'm is a blessing sure, for uh, me. I'm sure you'll uh, you'll uh, go away and research because of who you are. Like you know, you are an inquisitive person, and you're not afraid to look at these other um, uh, these other traditions. And you know, this links to uh, again. By the way, I just love that whole thing you just talked about. That's why I was smiling so much about it. But it links to that is the issue with men is a lack of self-esteem. There's a self-esteem crisis. And, and I am a part of that. Like I was part of the self-esteem generation. I struggled with self-esteem for a long time. Um, and, you know, the fact that, you know, my minotaur, my challenge was this ability to speak like I was so scared to speak. I had such bad social anxiety. Mm-hmm. Like I used to literally panic making phone calls to the doctors, you know, that kind of thing. But at the same time, you know, you mentioned it earlier that you used to have these fits of rage. Well, I too used to have fits of rage, but they were in my bedroom alone when there's nobody else there. But as soon as anybody yeah. else is there, I wouldn't show any emotion whatsoever, not right. anger, not uh, not love, not nothing, because I was just too afraid. And that came from a, a lack of self-esteem. And the point that I'm trying mm-hmm. to make is those with a lack of self-esteem are also sensitive about their own religion and their own traditions in that then they won't even entertain a conversation, let alone try to study or try to understand a different tradition or a different religion, which I suppose this is a a topic for a completely different conversation, which is Hmm. probably the reason why religions fight one another, people of religions fight one another, where they're trying to make out my religion is better than yours. That's coming from a place of a lack of self-esteem and insecurity Hmm. with yourself. Because when you've got self-esteem and when you are assured in your own tradition, you can then have a conversation like this. And what you will find is there's a mutual respect. There's an understanding. There's an appreciation. 
And it's not, well, I'm right, you're wrong, mine's better, yours isn't. What you actually find is, well, there's a lot of similarities and we're all on this path where the end goal, God, is in fact the same goal for, for us all. And um, uh, obviously I've absolutely loved this podcast. I want to stop it there because I think we could go on <laughs> for hours and hours more. Um, and we yes. haven't even got to the third topic, which I think this will lead us nicely into that. I mean, we can revisit some of these themes. I'm sure we will, uh, because the other topic is just as important. Um, so, you know, to finish off, let people know how they can contact you and how they can find out more about you and the Renaissance of Men. Sure. This has been really great, by the way. Obviously, I can talk about all this stuff for hours. So I look forward to continuing the conversation with you because there's this is, you know, it's been my life for, for 20 years. So it's, it's great to be able to talk about issues related to men and masculinity at this depth. So thank you for this invitation to share this with you. Um, uh, you can f- visit my website at renofmen.com. That's R-E-N-O-F-M-E-N, renofmen.com, like Renaissance of Men, but shorter. I have the Renaissance of Men podcast. Uh, if you don't know how to spell Renaissance, that's totally okay because you can because I've misspelled it as well many times. <laughs> you can go to you can go to my link tree, which is linktree slash rent of men. And there you can find links to my website, to my podcast. You can find me on Instagram at rent of men. You can find me on Twitter at will underscore rent of men. I'll be starting a YouTube channel too, and all that stuff is available, including the podcasts I've appeared on. All that stuff is available on my link tree. So once again, link tree uh, rent of men. Brilliant. And I will drop a link below in the comments on the YouTube uh, and in the comment section on the podcast uh, so you can access um, that information, which Will has just relayed. Will, it's been an absolute pleasure. I have totally enjoyed this and I am already looking forward to the next one. Do you have any final words before we sign off to those listening? No, just uh, just words of encouragement to use uh, Zulfikar, correct? Is that, is that correct way to yep, pronounce that? Yeah. yeah. Uh, just some words of encouragement to you because I think you're on a really good path with asking the questions that you're asking with treating mythology, particularly the myth of the Minotaur and many other myths as tools that you can learn to under, you can use to learn to understand yourself and answering asking questions about yourself and reality on a level of depth that I know is nourishing, not only to you, but is nourishing to many men. And I'm sure that you know that. And I just would like to yeah. encourage you to remain on this path because the, you know, the you're digging a well for a fountain that'll, that will um, provide uh, spiritual water to many men. So I honor you and I thank you for having me here. I appreciate that. That means a lot. So once again, thank you. As for the viewers, I am sure you enjoyed this because there's absolutely no way you can't enjoy this conversation. Uh, and until the next one, we will see you soon in the next episode. Until then, take care. Bye-bye. If you liked this episode, it would mean a lot if you would please rate and write a review. Please also subscribe so you get notified anytime a new episode drops. Thank you for tuning in. Now go out and attack your Minotaur.